Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. We are in lockdown for the second time, so I am joined remotely by author, illustrator and our virtual guide for today's wander around the county, Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. Hello, David. Closeted again, but the spirit of the outdoors is bursting within. How are you coping up there, Mark, in distant Geltsdale? Well, it's not quite that like the other lockdown. Uh, I have been able to get out a little, uh, very cautiously, like everybody in the area, but I live right out of the rural setting, and uh, I've been getting out to equally rural places, and uh, so I'm fine. One of the advantages of doing this Zoom conversation, Mark, is that we can literally Zoom around the county rather than following a short set walk. And that lends itself very well to tonight's podcast. And uh, by way of an introduction, you posted one of your lovely linescapes uh, on Twitter, to which we got a number of replies. The finest film known to humanity. We've gone on holiday by mistake. And are you the farmer? So, so there's some clues. But what, what was the linescape, Mark? Oh, yes. It was Crow Crack. Or should I say Sleddle Hall, which uh, is, is uh, the most evocative setting you could imagine. Sitting, hanging on a hillside in uh, wet Sleddle, which actually lives up to its uh, billing at this time of year. You have to go with waders to get there. But actually, the setting of the hall, if you're interested in history, is fascinating because it's at the end of a uh, hillside, a south-facing hillside, cultivation terraces on it, presumably connected with Sharp Abbey and the Grange there. So it's a lovely, lovely setting. And it's a place of pilgrimage for Withnell and I folk. So uh, I would recommend it on a sunny day. The owner is very au fait with the adoration of that film that that setting evokes. And that is the focus of this podcast, the films of Cumbria and films that are set within Cumbria. And we have the perfect guest tonight, Mark. We've got David Banning, who has written the definitive publication, An A to Z of Cumbria and the Lake District on Film, published Hayloft 2016. And he is joining us remotely from, well, we shall find out soon. Um, So I'm going to now fade myself out and I'm going to take a back seat and enjoy this conversation about one of my great passions, Phil, between you and David. David, it's great to be with you, and it's a special joy because uh, you've got a subject there that fascinates me, and I rather fancy a good number of our regular listeners, particularly as it has Cumbria beating at its heart. Now, I'd first of all like to find a little bit about who David Banning is. Where are you speaking from now, for example, but where do you come from? Uh, Hi, Mark. Well, it's a pleasure to come on and and speak on the podcast. I'm uh, speaking to you from Hess Bank in uh, Lancashire, actually. I've just recently moved here. I've been here about three months or so. Before that, I lived in Troutbeck Bridge near Windermere for probably about just over three years or so. I've worked in the music business down in in London, played in bands and stuff uh, for years, um, and then decided that uh, the label that I worked for was taken over by a big corporate. So I ended up um, getting out of that. Uh, and then ended up working in museums and galleries. And then that led me really to the Lake District because I uh, took a year, sort of an internship really, at the Wordsworth Trust in Grasmere back in 2008. And um, that really captured my imagination, a completely different landscape that I've been used to up to that point. And then ever since then, I've lived on and off uh, in Cumbria or, or in Lancashire now. Cumbria itself means a great deal to you, I would judge. Yes, there is a strain of my family that comes from uh, Cumbria. Uh, I can remember as a kid, we used to go and see my uncle Sam, who lived in Cockermouth. 
I couldn't understand the word he said. He used to call pounds puns. You know, quite an interesting accent on the go, but he was a lovely, uh, really generous chap. And, uh, you know, he used to come down because we lived for five years in St. Anne's when I was a kid in, uh, in Lancashire near Blackpool. We used to often day trip up to, to the lakes. Uh, we used to pile into a really uh, knackered old Vauxhall Viva and uh, try and go on some of the passes and uh, suffer as a result. When I came back up here from London back in 2008, it was a chance to almost kind of relive those days. But for me, really get out in the fells and, you know, walk properly, which we never really did as a family. We always used to kind of drive around a lot and just concentrate on the lakes, which which is sad, really, because we missed out on a lot. What I find quirky is that your surname is a Cumbrian name. It's a Viking term and it means cursed. Oh, well, <laughs> that explains a lot. There's a farm near Threlkeld called Setmer Banning, and there's Bannisdale, yeah. and they just meet very unwelcome places. <laughs> but you are very welcome, David. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I never knew that. That's, that's fascinating. Well, yeah, this is one of my downfalls. I explore the hedge trimmings of life. Anyway, this book that you've written, it's the first one. What spurred you to get into it? The beginning of it really was watching a film, Snow White and the Huntsman. I think the film had come out in 2012 and I'd missed it at the cinema and I just fancied uh, watching something on DVD, a bit of escapism, a bit of fantasy. Snow White and the Huntsman, it had good reviews and whatnot, so I just decided to respond to that. Halfway through the film, there's a whole sort of scene where they walk through Cathedral Quarry or Cathedral Cave, I should say. I love slate forests anyway, but Cathedral just has this amazing ambience to it. I remember the first time I went there, a friend of mine took me there and didn't really say too much about it, just kind of let me walk into the big amphitheatre. So it kind of fascinated me. And then I started thinking afterwards, uh, after the film, what other films have used Cumbria and the lakes as locations. Did a bit of research and thought there must be a, a guide or a book or something like that. And mm. to my astonishment, there wasn't. And I thought that was incredible because, as we all know, there are so many books about the lakes published every year. And it has quite a rich film history, which I only slowly began to uncover. And then that just kind of uh, blossomed from there, really. And it's amazing how something just takes over your life. And what sort of definition of terms did you come upon to define what you were doing? To be honest with you, um, I would probably still be doing it if I incorporated all the TV shows as well. So I just concentrated on films. And the definition would be any film that has used Cumbria and the lakes as a location in the film. Mm. In the book, there's probably around about 60 or so films in total. Real big blockbusters, but then there's a lot of low-budget films that not many people would have heard of. But they use really fascinating locations and things, so there always seem to be an angle to, to write about. So what do you feel Cumbria actually offers filmmakers it definitely has a definitive sense of place. There are so many uh, different facets to the landscape. Obviously, there's rolling mountainous uh, ranges, which you know are going to show up amazingly on film. Mirror-like lakes, isolated cottages, pack horse bridges, slate quarries, the sort of desolate moonscape that they uh, will bring. And that, that is just unique to Cumbria. Sophie Neville, who played Abel Seaman Titty, in the original uh, 1974 Solos and Amazons film. She recalled her experiences of Cumbria quite vividly. I'm, I'm going to just read you a little quote that she wrote. And she said, uh, it has rainy weather, busy roads, and the sound of motorboats can be a challenge. But the grandeur of lakes and mountains transcends mundane problems. You will need an energetic location manager and up to three options on the call sheet. And there was the, uh, the film Miss Potter, directed by an Australian director called Chris Noonan. And he just simply described the area as one of the most spectacular on Earth. One of the magical things about Cumbria is it is reasonably compact. Yeah, and I think what uh, Sophie talked about, having the three options on the call sheet, I think because it is so compact, you can have a look at the weather and then just think, right, OK, we'll try and do this today. And you've got plenty of different options there. It's just a kind of unique place, really, and it can fall into many different categories. So it's not just beautiful scenery. You can do some really kind of gritty landscape shots as well. 
with the slate quarries, it can be quite industrial looking, quite apocalyptic. Any kind of great open expanse of landscape lends itself to that feel as well. Mm-hmm. So I think it is just the unique sense of place that it brings. It's going to attract any kind of filmmaker, I would have thought. That's an intriguing start, David. This whole sense of the majesty of the Lake District, that's one thing that I think many of our listeners will resonate with. Uh, when you think of John Ruskin, he thought of Coniston Water as the great setting where mountains create the great landscapes. Which film do we think of when we think of Coniston Water? Well, probably Swallows and Amazons, which was one of the most majestic films. Can you tell us a little bit about that one? I'll start with an obvious generalisation. I think if you mention film and the Lake District, most people will immediately think of Swallows and Amazons. Um, And that's probably because it was almost entirely shot on location in, in the lakes, all except for one scene. The original film was way back in 1974 now. It was directed by a chap called Claude Watton. The main locations were Windermere and Coniston. And I mean, it is an enchanting and, and relatively faithful recreation of Arthur Ransom's early holiday recollections at Coniston. It is just a, a, an enduring children's classic. It was kind of a, a nostalgic throwback, I think, to a time of lost innocence when kids had the freedom to have fun. And I think that's what lent its enduring popularity. The film's success thought to have been the catalyst for families across the UK to start flocking to the area and many uh, subsequently to seek out the film's locations. Miss Potter was another very influential film. It also impacted on tourism as well. I would say Miss Potter is probably one of the biggest films for Cumbria and the Lake District ever. It was directed by uh, Chris Noonan, who's an Australian director. It came out in 2006. It wasn't that long after horrible foot and mouth. The lakes was closed for pretty much a year, if you remember. And it had a bit of momentum, I think, to encourage people back to the area. It was just a very overdue film, I think, you know, to do a biopic of Beatrix Potter. I think it was about 10 years ago, I actually did a stint at uh, Hilltop, where I worked for about six months. So I saw up close, if you like, the impact of that film on particularly families Everybody wanted to see the place where they, they thought the film had been filmed, but it, it actually wasn't filmed at Hilltop. <laughs> the big reveal is it was filmed. It was filmed at Yew Tree Farm, uh, Coniston, <laughs> which ironically is at the bottom of a valley. It's not on a hilltop. It had some really nice locations, a location in Whitehaven, the Run Story attraction, which was, I think, uh, Mr. Elis's offices, the solicitor that Beatrix uh, marries in the end. There was also Luffrig Tarn, which is one of the most beautiful places in the in the middle of the lakes. And as I said, you know, obviously uh, Hilltop, I think they tried to have a look at filming there, but it would have done irreparable damage to the house. And one of the things that I know have, from having worked there is the National Trust to look after it. They like to say it's literally been left just as Beatrix would have gone out herself. It's just left how she would have had it. To put a film crew through it and would have just absolutely destroyed it. So they had to find somewhere else. And actually, Utree Farm was a really good choice. Made it to look exactly like it. Potential benefits of screen tourism to the local economy are immense. The British Film Commission, um, they promote England internationally. And they've done loads of surveys about film tourism. Got figures here from 2014, so they're probably a bit out of date now, but they reckon it was worth annually 100 to 140 million. We know that uh, lots of domestic visitors to the UK would not have travelled to to various areas had they not seen it associated with film or or a television drama. International visitors are supposed to spend about 1.6 million a year, um, their day spend value. So seeing Cumbria in a major film or a TV adaptation, drama, whatever, will have an effect. People do actually try and seek out locations and once you get people into the area then that has a huge knock-on effect for for all kinds of businesses we're certainly going to need that well we've talked about some pretty impressive films of which of course swallows and amazons is an influencer on people's uh, emotional connection with the area but there's also been some bodafini classics you could probably go back to perhaps a film like the dam busters that was filmed in 1955 
absolute classic war film. A stellar cast. I mean, you had uh, a war hero, Richard Todd. He played Wing Commander Guy Gibson. Sir Michael Redgrave was Barnes Wallace. Where I used to live in Troutbeck Bridge, uh, I had a, an old chap who lived above me. He remembers the, the filming over Windermere, and he said the landscape actually shook when the Lancaster bombers went over. They were flying so low. So it was filmed on Windermere, Derwentwater and Grassmere. It's also one scene where they fly over Helm Crack, which you have to be very quick to, to see. Just before the dam busters at the end of the Second World War, you've got a film like Brief Encounter, often thought these days to be the most romantic film ever, directed by David Lean. A lot of people, if you mention Brief Encounter, they'll just say, oh, it was only filmed in Carnforth, you know, around the, the train station uh, in Lancashire. But it does have a, a Cumbrian location, which was Middlefell Bridge in Great Lango, which is opposite the old Dungeon Guild. It's a beautiful old pack horse bridge. There's a scene where Alec and Laura, Trevor Howard and, and Celia Johnson, take a drive out to the country. Then there was uh, the French Lieutenant's Woman, um, again, another adaptation that came out in the 1980s, featured Meryl Streep and, and Jeremy Irons. The Cumbrian location for uh, the French Lieutenant's Woman was uh, an arts and crafts house on the shores of Windermere, Broadleys. That was a, a really big film. And I mean, it was one of the top grossing films, um, probably about number five or six, I think, for Cumbria and the Lake Districts as a whole. I could probably quote you the top five if you wanted. Please, yeah. So the top five grossing films with scenes filmed in Cumbria, I can do it in reverse order if you like. Number five would have been uh, 28 Days Later, which we can talk about in a little bit. That took 9.8 million in the UK. Number four was Miss Potter, which took 13.2 million in the UK. Uh, Number three was Snow White and the Huntsman, which took 25.2 million in the UK. Number two was Peter Rabbit, the 2018 animated version, which took a whopping 56.3 million in the UK. And number one, I think we can probably guess, is Star Wars. Uh, Star Wars Episode Seven: The Force Awakens, released in 2015, took 163.6 million in the UK and over $2 billion worldwide. Amazing. Just think of how many people would link that necessarily with the Lake District. And yet, of course, it does. <laughs> Absolutely. It's got one of the most iconic scenes, you know, in that film where the X-Wing fighters are skimming across still water. Did they go over Thelmere as well or was it just... Uh, they did. Yeah, they did. And the, the only thing about the Thelmere sequence, sadly, it, it wasn't in the film. Ah. So um, what, what you have a lot these days with films, particularly action-adventure films, is when they do these so-called teaser trailers, they often feature um, footage that doesn't... It's not necessarily going to be in the final film because I can remember seeing the teaser trailer and the Thelmere footage and getting very excited and I can remember going to see the premiere at uh, the Royalty in, in Bowness, where amazingly the, the staff all dressed up as stormtroopers <laughs> and it was wonderful getting served peanuts by a stormtrooper. As one does. You mentioned about uh, Star Wars and Snow White and fantasy is I suppose another one of these tropes. Can you expand on that a little? There are a number of uh, different tropes that feature the films that I cover in the book. I'd say one of the main ones that's probably quite unique to Cumbria and the Lakes would be the kind of escape from the city, uh, the freedom of, uh, of the landscape. There is a film that's released back in 1970 that is in hugely timely for the times we're living through at the moment. That was a film called No Blade of Grass, directed by Cornell Wilde a gloomy adaptation of John Christopher's haunting eco-apocalyptic sci-fi novel, uh, which was called The Death of Grass. It's basically a global catastrophe story. The plot centres around a contagious new virus, which is nicknamed Chung Li, um, after it emerges from the Far East, which prompts obvious comparisons with, you know, a lot of derogatory comments from an ex-president during our a modern day pandemic. But in the film, the virus wipes out key members of the grass family. And so it makes crops like rice and wheat virtually obsolete. 
and brings worldwide food shortages. In the film, uh, Nigel Davenport, who went on to get more fame in Chariots of Fire later on, but he plays a character called John Custis, who's a, a London architect fleeing the city. London is put under martial law, and he flees the city with his family, and they're heading for the peace and quiet and plentiful food supplies of a farm that his brother owns in Westmoreland. And it is Westmoreland because obviously it's before Cumbria was uh, formed in 1974, so it is Westmoreland in the film. And the other locations, I, I just quickly, uh, there's, a, there's a nice shot of the Ribblehead Viaduct uh, on the Settle to Carlisle railway line. And there's also um, Highhead Castle, which is just south of Carlisle, which is like a, a romantic shell of a castle. But that really does set the theme of the escape from the city quite nicely. There's other films as well, probably lesser known. There's another film called uh, Killing Me Softly that was released in 2002, directed by uh, Chen Cage, a Chinese director, which was an erotic thriller uh, starring Heather Graham and Joseph Fiennes. Not particularly great, to be honest. And it is quite steamy. There's quite a bit of getting your kit off and things like that, especially around an old church near Oldswater. I don't know what the, the locals would think of that. Matterdale Church, I think it was. Oh, Matterdale Church. Yeah, Matterdale Church. Yes, the one that saddle back roof. Yeah. Yes. Um, you know, so it's a beautiful little church. And um, basically they meet in London and then they decide to come up to the lakes and get married. And the film does provide quite a nice contrast with the crowded city streets against the open countryside. There's a scene where they drive off down Kirkston Pass and things like that. There was an, also another film uh, called Three and Out. A bit of a flop, it has to be said. This was released in 2008. But again, it had a, a quite a strong cast. It had Mackenzie Crook, uh, who was fresh from The Office at that time. Cole Meany, uh, Irish actor, uh, been in Star Trek, all sorts of different things. Imelda Staunton and, and Gemma Arterton, who I think it was one of her first ever film roles. The plot is about the three and out unwritten rule for um, London Underground tube drivers. The three and out rule is for drivers who accidentally kill three people in a month. Apparently, um, if that quirk of fate ever happened, they would then be uh, entitled to a 10-year payoff on full pay to help cope with the psychological damage. The plot is basically uh, Paul, who's played by Mackenzie Crook. He accidentally strikes two people dead in the space of a week. And then he hears about this rule and then tries to devise a plot to basically take advantage of it. Cole Meany's character is drunkard very down on his luck they hatch a suicide uh, plot together where he agrees to go through with it but on the proviso that they make uh, one last road trip to Colmini's uh, estranged wife and daughter uh, and that's in the lakes so that's where you get the contrast again there they filmed that all, all around Coniston some different locations in the lakes though there they filmed in the Black Ball pub fantastic little pub right in the heart of the village and the old Miners Bridge as well on the route up to Coniston Old Man. The film actually caused quite a bit of controversy with Aslef, the drivers' union, because they said that it, it completely trivialised railway deaths, uh, which it does, you know, wholeheartedly. It's quite the reverse of Swallows and Amazons anyway. <laughs> yeah. We talk about this uh, escape from the city trope, but there's the other one, of course, is horror. Horror and um, kind of apocalyptic, if you like. For me, uh, one of my favourite films that was filmed in, in the late was Danny Boyle's post-apocalyptic thriller, 28 Days Later, which had a great uh, tagline, be thankful for everything, for soon there will be nothing. The film came out in the aftermath of September the 11th, and again, it, it will heavily resonate with everyone at the moment because it featured scenes of empty London streets, Interestingly, it had a screenplay that was written by Alex Garland, uh, who wrote the book The Beach. And he also produced uh, a recent BBC series called Devs that was also filmed at Cathedral Cave in Langdale, so the same location as Snow White. Annadale Water was uh, the scene where Danny Boyle chose to present the end of the world, if you like. And that was a, a place called Bonus Cottage, right beside Annadale Water. And there's a memorable scene in the film where a jet plane flies overhead while they unfurl a huge, great big banner that says hello on it. And then there's other zombie horror films. There was another film uh, set in Cumbria in the 1970s, Let Sleeping Corpses Lie. 
a really good title there. Yes. <laughs> a take on Night of the Living Dead, the George uh, Romero's classic. And that has a scene filmed in uh, Levens, a petrol station in Levens. And then there's other films, quite a cult uh, film. It's an absolutely bonkers film called Killer's Moon, Clockwork Orange ripoff, which some called a cult movie, but a lot of people just completely trashed it, uh, including the director who said, please don't take it too seriously. That was filmed at Armthwaite Hall near Bassethwaite, and again played on that post-apocalyptic uh, landscape. I often think about the humble box cameras that the Abraham brothers of Keswick used to film uh, dramatic landscape itself of climbers. So there is this whole genre of outdoors films, Century on the Crags and films of that nature. When I was compiling the films for the book, I thought it was important to reference the early climbing films. You mentioned the Keswick brothers, the Abraham brothers. They were the originators of film in Cumbria, taking their photographs and their iconic shots. And I discovered that there were two seminal documentaries that were released in the, in the mid-1980s, Lakeland Rock um, and, as you say, Century on the Crags, which was 1986. Century on the Crags was born out of the late Alan Hankinson's book, The First Tigers. I remember rightly. I think a tiger was a climber. It was a description of a climber climbing at a consistently high level. Yeah. That was a really fascinating uh, documentary. It was filmed entirely in the Lake District um, and it traces the history of rock climbing from the first solo ascent of Nape's Needle on Great Gable by Haskett Smith yep. in the late 1880s. Um, and then it sort of references the iconic photographs by George and, and Ashley Abraham. The great thing about Alan Hankinson, I mean, he's such a likeable character anyway, but he brings you back to the contrast between modern gear and what they were using, i.e. pretty much nothing. They went up to these amazing places with hardly any protection whatsoever. It's incredible to just see them there in their Victorian clothes, almost like Victorian gentlemen with a few ropes. It looks absurd to us these days. But really, you could say that that is the birth of film in Cumbria, I would say. So it was really important, I felt, to reference that. Yeah. Lakeland Rock is another... Uh, I, I don't know, have you ever seen Lakeland Rock, Mark? Oh, yes, yeah. I mean, that's a, a kind of classic rock climbing film introduced by Sir Chris Bonington. The director was a chap called Paul Berith. It was interesting what he did with that documentary because he really put the camera in the climber's face, if you like. Really close-up actions of some of the major climbs that they showed. In it, uh, Bonington is joined by the late Don Willans, who, who was another great mountaineer. Uh, they climbed together in Dovedale. There's quite a fascinating bit where Chris Bonington gets into a bit of bother on uh, Goat Crag in Borrowdale. You know, interesting to see him almost lose his temper a little bit with it with himself and there's some uh, some great uh, climbing on raven crag in film here which is uh, a really imposing slab of rock that you pass it on the 591 i know the one um and that was uh, a couple of uh, women climbers jill price and jill lawrence and they make incredibly short work of it but again you know it's a fine piece of rock climbing history we're used to all these films uh, i mean kendall mountain film festival these days shows some amazing footage in hd all these kind of real adrenaline-fueled films of rock climbing, cycling, running, bloody blah And I love all those sort of films, but this film still retains what I'd say is a sense of its kind of authentic truth. You really do feel you're in with the climbers. And Terry Abraham's film, Terry, um, he's just done a, an amazing trilogy of films, the Life of the Mountain trilogy, real labour of love, trudging out with all that equipment, day in, day out, and getting these amazing shots, sweeping panoramas, spectacular sunsets and sunrises, and, and these kind of signature time-lapse uh, shots that he's become so well-known for. Were you in the Scarfell film, Mark? Yes. I, I'm only the merest smidgen of an appearance, and I don't deserve more than that, but Terry deserves all the praise he gets for his diligence and uh, attention for detail. One of the most dramatic corners of the Lake District is Borrowdale. I really love that. And so many visitors love going up 
Derwentwater. And before they get to the jaws of Borodale, they come to Lidore Falls. And romantically, down the generations, people have been drawn towards the waterfalls and the wooded surrounds there, the sylvan surrounds. It was a place that impacted on one particular producer. Yeah, and uh, the person that you're describing, uh, the director, I've got a fantastic quote that he gave to the Guardian newspaper at Coniston Water just before he died, uh, around about 15 or so years ago. And he said, it's a magic area. I would climb a hill every day. I never took drugs there, but Coleridge did. Imagine the impact. Kublai Khan's pleasure dome wherever you look. (laughs) I did a program on him while I was there and one on Wordsworth. I'd found love and I just wanted to show it off. Well, that is a quote from Ken Russell. Who else? He's probably uh, responsible for really putting Cumbria on the film map, I would say. And, and there's a lovely story of him when he set off from his home in Southampton, where he was from in the late 1960s, 1967, I think it was. Uh, and he was coming up to the lakes to recce some of the area's potential locations for the very first time. It took far longer uh, than he expected it to. And he ended up arriving at his hotel um, beside the Lodore Falls at nightfall. So he'd seen nothing. He'd seen absolutely nothing, mm-hmm. um, you know, arriving under the under the cover of darkness. So he woke up the next morning, and this is the famous uh, quote that everybody associates with him. And you can imagine uh, a director and somebody as flamboyant as, as uh, Ken Russell was, um, and he literally opened his curtains and he was greeted with the sight of Skidor's magnificence. And he just said um, it was like God made manifest. Wow. And that had a, a huge effect on him. And I think that sort of set the wheels in motion for him to eventually come and live uh, not very far away in, in, in Borrowdale. Ken Russell was the self-proclaimed enfant terrible of British cinema. You know, he was very flamboyant and provocative, a polarising character uh, for both critics and audiences alike. But he had a real love affair with the Lake District landscape. And he used the uh, the landscape to feature in several of his films as a stand-in for countries like Bavaria, Switzerland and Iceland. Possibly the most controversial film, The Devils, that actually features the Waswater Screes. There's a scene in that where... Oliver Reed sits just beside the screes. You can see the screes quite clearly in the shot there. And then it sort of breaks away to a pivotal orgy scene as, as what you'd expect in, in one of these films. So it's a real, it, it, that real kind of contrast. In 1974, he did a, a biopic on Mahler, the uh, Austrian composer. And that film literally explodes into life at the beginning uh, where this sort of wooden hut bursts into flames beside the water. That's also featured scenes that were filmed up at Castle Crag, a whole seven or eight minute continuous scene up at Castle Crag, which um, Ken Russell uh, ended up buying a, a place in Borrowdale, an old cottage in Borrowdale. So that wouldn't have been far from his house there. And legend says that he incorporated any tourists, anybody who was in the area when he was on location in Borrowdale, they were all fair game to feature in some way. Uh, in his films as either extras or to help with the actual production. The rock opera Tommy featured um, quite a few scenes around the same area. There's a scene with the Hells Angels in Daltwood Quarry in uh, Borrowdale. There's scenes on Waller Crag where Roger Daltrey comes up and there's a big sunrise and you can quite clearly see it's the top of uh, Waller Crag. It's just amazing how much he sort of incorporated that landscape in it. Well, we'll go from Ken Russell and his magical filmmaking uh, to something that's very dear to many of our listeners' hearts, uh, a cult film, Wisdell and I. We're drifting into the arena of the unwell, I think uh, they would probably say in the, in the Wisdell film. Every line is quotable and often is, to be honest. I mean, flowers are simply tarts, prostitutes for the bees. I must have some booze. I demand to have some booze. London is a country coming down from its trip. And of course, the often quoted one, we've gone on holiday by mistake. I used to work alongside former colleagues who would quote it literally word for word, especially after a few ales. Uh, And to be honest, at the time, it used to drive me mad. I actually didn't really pay the uh, film too much attention because of it. But um, over the years, probably as I've got older, 
it's really had uh, quite an effect on me. Taking a step back, it seems strange to think how such a low-budget film could have endured for so long. At its heart, it is about two failed actors who are trudging around the outskirts of Cumbria. I think it was a semi-autobiographical tale of Bruce Robinson, the director, who was centred on his experiences as a failed actor himself. And the other thing I would say is it's, it's incredible to think that Richard E. Grant, who plays Withnail, is actually teetotal. He doesn't drink. And I find that incredible. Another thing that, um, that I uncovered was director Christopher Nolan. He chose a track from the uh, soundtrack when he was on Desert Island Discs. It was a track called Marwood Walks. It's a really lovely, melancholic piece of music. And apparently he used to show the film when he was a student at UCL. And they used to put these uh, all-night film shows on it. With Nail and I was one of those, and it was possibly the most popular film that they put on. And he talked about it in a similar way to how I felt about it when, you know, he sort of said over time, it's taken on a bit more of an emotional, almost a melancholic feeling uh, for him. Um, and also, you know, the soundtrack is beautiful. There are some really lovely pieces uh, on the soundtrack. Back when I was doing the research for the book, I was lucky enough to get into Crow Crack. I got in contact with Tim Ellis, who, who's the owner, and he just recently acquired the property after a bit of a wrangling with the water company and whatnot. But uh, he was very generous and he let me go in and I took some, some photographs and it was just before he'd really sort of had a chance to do it all up. So I could still see some of the graffiti that uh, fans had written because the cottage was left open to the elements for years and years. And it really was a site of pilgrimage for fans of the film. And Tim Ellis, he, he told me about some uh, chaps from Liverpool who used to go up there every month almost and just hang out there and take loads of beer, guitars and whatnot. And, and it just became their, their place. And he met them like, you know, just after he bought the place and sort of said, look guys, you know, this is not going to have to happen now. Uh, it's my place. You could own it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you know, one of the, the nice things that he's done is the Eden Arts programme, they regularly show annual um, screenings of the film at uh, Crow Crag at Wet Sledal. I've been up there. I know it's echoes with that heritage of that one film and that one place. It's magic. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And the annual screenings, they're always sold out, uh, the Eden Arts ones. Uh, on my sort of subsequent, uh, my new book, uh, which is a book that I sort of walk the, the edge of the National Park boundary, and um, I walk past one of the locations in Withnail, the old Bampton phone box. And that, again, is, a, is another site of pilgrimage because it's got, if you go into the, the phone box, it's got a signing in book. And it's all been put together by fans of the film. And it's just littered with quotes from the film. Whoever it is, whoever sort of is responsible for the upkeep of it, they keep it going. It's just really understated. And most people probably walk past it and don't even give it a, a, look, a second look. You know, it's an old Gilbert Scott red phone box. Well, let's head south from Wet Sleddle towards the shores of Windermere. And um, one of the strangest storylines, A Jaws on Windermere. What's that film all about? <laughs> That was a film uh, that was going to be called The Pike. I found out about it from somebody I was working with when I was uh, writing the book. And he worked on um, Windermere Lake Cruises for a while. He was around when they were doing a little bit of filming. And he sort of said that there's a, there's a great clip on uh, YouTube where um, there's like a, a bit about the film on an old Tomorrow's World programme. And so, you know, I went straight to YouTube and watched this, uh, this program, and it's absolutely bonkers. It was going to feature a 12-foot-long pike. They're obviously trying to cash in on the old Jaws franchise. The pike itself, I remember, was, was controlled by a, a computer, um, and it was like a mechanical pike. And I think you can still, because uh, I went and took a photograph of it, um, and you can still see it, the actual mechanical pike. Just opposite the Lowood Hotel near Ambleside, there's a jetty there where you can hire kayaks and things. And the model for it was, was just left there beside one of the huts, yeah. uh, which is quite sad, really. Uh, it deserves to be in a museum, I think. But apparently, um, in the film that was unmade, sadly, uh, Joan Collins 
um, had been signed up to play, um, admittedly, an unnamed woman. Yeah. She was going to be a character that was going to help reporters solve the mystery of this terrifying uh, menace. Uh, sadly, unmade, but uh, would have been would have been a classic. It would have been a, it would be a real big catch. <laughs> well, with the uh, lockdown down to the last week, it's a grand opportunity for us all to stop and think now, what should we go and look at now of the Lakeland films? Uh, could you recommend three? Yeah, to be honest, there's so many. To talk about um, certainly a couple of films that we haven't mentioned, one of them would be uh, a film called The Paradigm Case, which was uh, released in 1947. An often overlooked fact would be that one of Britain's greatest ever directors, Alfred Hitchcock, actually filmed scenes um, in Cumbria in the Lakes. And The Paradigm Case is basically like an all-star courtroom drama. It was a film that he supposedly didn't particularly uh, much care for himself. Critically, it wasn't that well received. But I think it's underrated. It's got a great cast. You've got uh, people like Gregory Peck, Charles Lawton, Anne Todd and Alida Valley. And also the fact that there are so many different Cumbrian locations as well. Um, there's an old railway station that's now sadly long gone at Braithwaite. That's where you can see Hitchcock's trademark walk-on part. He's carrying a cello. Uh, he's the uncredited man carrying cello. There's the Drunken Dark Inn in Barngates, just on the outskirts of Ambleside. And that doubles as like the hotel where Gregory Peck's character stays. The big family uh, home that is central to the plot was actually filmed at the Langdale Chase Hotel near to the Lowood where the pike is kept. So there's lots of interest there, lots of different locations. And, and as I say, I think it's been treated a bit harshly. Um, another film is a film called The One That Got Away. And that was uh, released in 1957. And that is the story of a German Luftwaffe pilot Oberleutnant Franz von Vera, nicknamed the one that got away. And that features old Grisdale Hall, uh, which was prisoner of war camp. And it had the nickname of the U-Boat Hotel because you know, the large amount of U-Boat officers that were sent there. But um, Franz von Vera is played by Hardy Kruger, who apparently himself was a former member of the Hitler Youth. Very flamboyant uh, character. Uh, he plays the pilot. And he, um, it is a true story. He was the only prisoner of war to escape from Allied custody. So again, that's that's a really interesting, a really good film um, that's not mentioned that often. So that's worth uh, a look. And the third one? The third one would be, uh, I think, if you haven't seen it, The French Lieutenant's Woman. Right. Um, I think that is a, an absolute classic. So what would be the most underrated film? I mean, a film left a, a real impression on me was a film called Radiator which was released back in 2014, premiered at the Theatre by the Lake. I was lucky enough to go to the premiere and I met uh, the director, a chap called Tom Brown. And it was kind of like a bit of an emotional homecoming because there were many locals from Mosdale who had helped out with the filming and because it was all set around uh, Mosdale and underneath Carrick Fell. It was kind of like an intimate portrait of his family, his family life. And, and they actually used the cottage that his, his mum and dad sadly passed away in. So it had all this kind of real uh, resonance to it, I think, for the locals that obviously knew his parents and took part in some of the filming, uh, and obviously for, for, for Tom Brown himself. But it had some standout performances by Richard Johnson and Gemma Jones, who played the role of his parents. And it's that theme of the chaos at the end of life Real poignant study of human and, and natural history. Very now, I think, as well, I think a lot of people have to come back and care for elderly parents uh, these days, and it really resonates on a, on a number of levels. Is there one film that you should definitely avoid? <laughs> There's probably quite a few, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the biggest uh, disappointments, shall we say, for me was the Postman Pat the movie. I'm sad to say that. Um, <laughs> An animated film version of a children's classic. I can, you know, remember growing up with Postman Pat on the TV, and I used to love the the old cartoons and whatnot. But the animated version came out in 2014. Is heavy-handed, brash. It's like a corporate satire almost. 
Pat is replaced by a Patbot 3000, which is like a, a super efficient robotic postman uh, with eyes that glow blood red. And, and Jess is turned into some kind of Terminator-esque um, machine. And it's, it's just nonsense. On the flip side, which is your all-time favourite? Well, I mean, we've, we've talked about it. It would have to be with Mel and I now. I've seen it probably a couple of times in the last two or three years. And it just grows and grows on me. You always see something new in it. Um, uh, the dialogue is absolutely so cutting and amazing performances. It's filmed in an area that is, is quite dear to my heart as well. So, um, you know, that would definitely be it. Well, more or less the sign off. This year has been tough for cinemas. Is the one cinema in Cumbria that when they do all open up again, you would recommend as being very special? Yeah, there's one cinema that stands out of head and shoulders above the rest for me, and that would be the Alhambra in Keswick. Um, absolutely love the place. Over 100 years old. Got such a nice ambience to it. I love the way that they, they keep the cinema sort of staffed by, I think, quite a few volunteers. They really do look after it. You feel very welcome when you go in there. They even put out reservations on the seats, uh, which is a lovely touch. And it's also quite an integral part to the Keswick Film Festival, which is fantastic for Cumbria as a whole, uh, you know, the whole sort of uh, scene, if you like. They also show the Osprey Short um, Film Awards there. And that's really nice for, for people from you know local communities where they can see films they've made on a big screen. Um, it's just, yeah, just one of those real kind of magical places um, to go and see a film. Absolutely. I, um, I, I was sitting to it with the world at one a, a few weeks ago and they mentioned the Alhambra in Keswick. And I thought, hey, where did that come from? Amazing. <laughs> and of course, I met the Rennies. Uh, Carol Rennie, uh, on the top of Crag Hill last year. Yeah. Well, she was out with her dad, uh, and she's closely in, involved with the rekindling of the arts and crafts movement in the town. Yeah. Anyway, it's been very special sharing these few minutes with you. You've uh, done a really wonderful essay on all those films that use this magic setting. Thank you for giving your time. It's been a pleasure and, and thank you very much for, for allowing me to, to share some of my experiences and uh, you know I hope that cinema does come back really strong because uh, it will give us all a lift so, um, so yeah thank you again. Journey's end after David's tour de force of Cumbrian film. But I don't know about you, Mark, I've learned a lot and had quite a bit of fun at the same time. Yes, it's very much the end of a, an amazing sequence of uh, recollections that David gave us. He's a serious film watcher. I loved it. And uh, I'll have to go to Lowood to find that shark. <laughs> Ah, the shark, yeah. I'm actually, I'm not sure if it's there anymore. I think I looked into this. Uh, I'm not quite sure why I looked into it, but I have a feeling it's been moved or lost or something rather. Um, if any listener knows any more, we'd obviously be delighted to know. Do you have a favourite Cumbrian film, Mark? Oh, very much with not a lie. But I do hop back to the uh, Swallows and Amazon, the original black and white film, because that really rekindles the enthusiasm and innocence of youth and the joy of adventure. I've been forced to watch, against my will, both Peter Rabbit, uh, more, more times than I would like to have done, and the new adaptation of Swallows and Amazons, which I think is quite a good film. But my favourite is 28 Days Later, which I just think is a great film. I, I have to say, The Lakes doesn't really feature strongly in it, but... Um, it's, I suppose it's got a nice little send-off in uh, Lonely Ennerdale. And, of course, we mustn't forget Terry. <laughs> no, no, we, we shouldn't. Well, we, we would never forget Terry. So we've had some correspondence, actually, on the subject of tonight's podcast. This is um, Alastair Bowden, uh, based down in Naddle. And, actually, he explains one of the mysteries uh, that David touched on, which is 
why Miss Potter wasn't filmed at Hilltop. So he writes, mm -hmm. A friend of mine was working for the National Trust when he heard that the producers were trying to get access to film at Hilltop Farm for Miss Potter. It's such a honeypot for the Trust that they couldn't afford to shut it for filming, so they said no. The production company was about to move the entire filming to Perthshire when my friend, who didn't want the lakes to lose out, got in touch with them and suggested they use Yew Tree Farm instead, as it was one of Mrs. Helis's first farms. They loved it, and they asked him to scout more locations, which he did. He got on so well with the filming team, he was invited to the world premiere in London with his wife and to the after-show party. Uh, he goes on to say... Perthshire is quite often substituted for the Lake District. Many scenes for the latest Swallows and Amazons movie were filmed there. Notably, you can't land a seaplane on any of the Lake District lakes, which is demanded from one of the scenes in the Swallows and Amazons remake. Right, well, that's us really, isn't it, Mark? We're done. I've got a, a list of films now that I obviously have to go and watch off uh, the back of the recommendations. Hopefully we'll get out again very soon. We've got several recordings to do to lead up to Christmas. So that's to be exciting. Okay, so we've still got a bit of time to pack some podcasts into the remainder of the year. Uh, look forward very much to them and hopefully walking with you very shortly. Indeed. Thanks everyone for listening. <laughs>